Welcome to the Healthy Figures Podcast, where we dive deep into the figures that affect your health. We'll discuss both literal figures like biomarkers and risk scores and human figures that are actively changing how healthcare gets delivered. Note that the information we provide in this podcast and at Precision Health Reports is not intended to replace consultation with a qualified medical professional. Don't take your health for granted. You only have one life to live. Hello, Matt Martin here. I'm excited to release this first real episode of this podcast series with the very timely topic of metabolic health. I'm joined today for the first of many of these sessions by my business partner, Dr. William Cromwell, a renowned expert in cardiometabolic health. Having this in-house expert on hand has made a huge difference in my personal understanding of metabolic health, and I know you will get a lot out of this hour. Welcome, Bill. Well, Matt, thanks to be. I'd be doing us all a great injustice if I tried to convey your background. So why don't you please give us a little about you? Well, it's interesting because I was thinking about this um, as we're getting ready for the podcast. Uh, my background in lipidology goes really way back, uh, 30 years plus. Um, I was a physical chemist who went to medical school, uh, so you measure things. And when you go to medical school, one of the things that was on my mind early on was, you know, what kills people? And uh, it became quickly uh, obvious that it was vascular disease, heart attacks, strokes, and so you start asking a few questions. Well, you know, what are the things that we can do to make a dent on the number one killer of Americans? And there were a lot of ideas, but a lot of them were in their early stages. Um, and as people kind of went through the, the opportunities to make an impact on cardiovascular disease, one of the areas that kept coming up was cholesterol, triglyceride, and the particles that carry them that we call lipoproteins. And I found that pretty interesting because those are things that you measure. And I came from a background where measuring things was what I did. So I thought that would be a pretty cool way to spend my career uh, trying to uh, understand and make an impact on cardiovascular disease. Um, so what I found out when I started asking those questions was there was really not uh, much uh, at that time as a field of lipidology like we know it today. Uh, lipidology at that time was basically uh, an early discipline where the relationship of high cholesterol with heart attacks was pretty well known at a population level. But there were also examples where uh, people with high cholesterol may not have the same risk as other people. Conversely, there were examples of people whose cholesterol didn't appear to be so bad that had a whole lot of cardiovascular risk. And so there was more to the story than just a high cholesterol. And what I basically uh, spent a lot of time doing was uh, trying to understand that, uh, both in terms of medical school, residency. Um, I received a Mead Johnson Graduate Fellowship and uh, did my lipid work at WashU in St. Louis. And then went back to a large multi-specialty group uh, in Kentucky where I started my first lipid clinic in the late 80s. Uh, from that point, uh, I moved to Florida to be a part of a group which was fairly novel at the time called the Florida Lipid Associates. It was a network of um, folks in the lipid space who wanted to band together for best, best practices. And so we basically at one point had a little bit more than 30 lipid clinics throughout the state of Florida, which uh, in the 90s was a, a pretty interesting and unusual thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, from that point, uh, in uh, the late 90s, I moved to Raleigh to, to be a part of a company called LipoMed, which became LipoScience. Um, working with uh, a gentleman who became a research partner of mine for nearly 30 years, and that's Jim Otbos. And uh, during that time, we, we spent a lot, a lot of energy doing clinical trials and studies to understand the, the very detailed elements of uh, what it means to measure the particles that carry cholesterol and triglyceride, what that information is good for, 
uh, how it can help inform us about cardiovascular risk, how it can inform us about insulin resistance, how it can teach us about diabetic risk, mortality, and uh, all that uh, became uh, a very uh, successful company that we, we sold to LabCorp and they're continuing to make available uh, the analytes that uh, we developed. And uh, along that way, I've continued clinical practice. And so my clinical practice for um, 30 years has been devoted to uh, people with cholesterol problems, triglyceride problems, genetic or acquired, um, and basically um, trying to, at one uh, person at a time, do the best we can to understand the reasons why those numbers are abnormal. And more importantly, what do we need to do for each individual, one person at a time? And, and that's the, the point of reference that I've you know, pretty much maintained throughout my clinical practice. And that is that doing the right thing one person at a time requires a lot of detail and a lot of time. And you, you really don't have a cookie cutter approach where everybody's treated the same way. Uh, that uh, pays huge dividends for the patient, but it, it also has become increasingly challenging. Um, uh, and we can get into to reasons why that's challenging and the way that uh, guidelines are kind of a starting point for that decision-making process, but guidelines really don't tell you when you have done the right thing or even enough for one person at a time. So this, this gets us to, you know, precision health reports. And what is it that we can do to help? How can we help uh, patients and their providers to take a tremendous amount of information, hundreds of different clinical trials, lots of different guidelines, lots of information that makes a difference one person at a time. How can we take all of that information and distill it down into a, a very comprehensive, very actionable report that makes sense, where people really understand what's wrong that causes these numbers to be abnormal? And more importantly, what can you do that makes a huge impact on your risk for diabetes, heart attack, stroke? And, and how can you know when you're making, say, an adjustment in diet or exercise how do you know that it's having the effect that is very, very likely to have a result of decreasing risk of heart attack and stroke? So kind of a long-winded answer, but it's, it's important, I think, to you know, kind of know the why behind uh, why we do things and, and what the journey has been to this point. And that's, mm -hmm. that's my story to this point. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. That's great. And so, you know, with one of the things I've, I've learned working with you, um, is the relationship between vascular disease and metabolic health and, and that, you know, that grouping together as cardiometabolic health and cardiometabolic risk. Um, how, you know, a lot of people don't realize those are very related. And so maybe if we take kind of metabolic health to, you know, as its own topic for the moment, um, you know, metabolic health, obesity, type two diabetes, insulin resistance, you know, those often get commingled in the same conversation really separately than, than vascular disease. How, how do you best untangle um, the, the metabolic health uh, topics to really describe you know, where they're related and where they're not? You know, that's a great question. And it's, it's really uh, much like the analogy of trying to describe an elephant if you're blindfolded and you have five people holding on to five different elephant parts. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we've all seen that commercial or that cartoon. And, and the cartoon's funny because uh, each point of view is uh, not wrong, but it's incomplete, right? So metabolic health is the same way. Um, we, we see features of metabolic health that we've known for a long time are problematic. Obesity, 
Uh, people with especially increased abdominal obesity are individuals who over time uh, develop a constellation of problems such as high blood pressure, high blood sugar, high risk for diabetes, increased risk for heart attack and stroke. And so you, you begin to identify the cluster of um, phenomena uh, from either the obesity standpoint, the blood pressure standpoint, the blood sugar standpoint. Uh, and all of these things are, are parts of a single entity that we are talking about as metabolic health or more specifically um, cardiometabolic health. So let's, let's try to understand the elephant as a single entity and not the individual parts that people are holding onto in the cartoon. The single entity that we're talking about is really the insulin resistant syndrome. And the insulin resistant syndrome is something that we've known about for a very long time. Uh, elements of it have been described for decades. Uh, one of the first people to try to see the elephant as a single entity was Jerry Reven in the 80s. Um, and Dr. Reven um, really is the, the person who, for the first time, uh, tried to get people to appreciate that there's really a common soil, a common uh, metabolic problem that gives rise to all of these things. Now, he called it uh, metabolic syndrome X, and that didn't go very far. Uh, and then people renamed it the insulin resistant syndrome. And then for a shorthand description, many people today just call it the metabolic syndrome. So if, if you think of that and, and ask the question, what's, what's kind of at the root cause of all of this? What's going on? Um, it's the problem of insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is something that you know, our listeners have heard, I think, a lot about. Um, they may not kind of understand some of the details, but basically uh, insulin resistance in its simplest forms is when cells fail to respond to an insulin signal, right? So insulin is produced by our pancreas. It works on liver, muscle, and uh, fat cells primarily. And those cells, when they come in contact with insulin, have certain responses that they are supposed to have. Now, what happens if these cells, for various reasons, don't respond to an insulin signal? Well, it's kind of like asking your, your young child to do a chore. Uh, and I've got five kids, and I understand what that's like. And you ask a child to do something, and sometimes it doesn't happen right away. Go figure, right? So mm -hmm. you have to repeat yourself. And then after you repeat yourself a few times, eventually uh, what you've asked for gets done. Well, the body's not any different. Uh, insulin is supposed to have a response. And if the response isn't happening, the body makes more insulin. And so we get into this higher and higher insulin uh, state where lots of insulin is circulating and eventually the, the cells respond. Now, the consequence of that is that uh, things are happening as the body is trying to compensate by making more and more insulin. You know, one of the things that's happening is that blood sugar is beginning to rise. Uh, another thing that's happening is that blood pressure begins to rise. Another thing that happens is that triglyceride, one of the fats that we measure in the blood, is more common. Um, another thing that happens is uh, cholesterol in HDL particles, called HDL cholesterol, is going down. Uh, another thing that happens is, you know, the center of the body begins to add weight and the belly begins to expand. Uh, and all of these things are uh, manifestations that, that you can measure or observe that are telling you uh, there's something else going on and that something else is insulin resistance. Cool, cool. And, uh, you know, you oftentimes hear people talk about um, insulin resistance or insulin uh, sensitivity as the damper uh, that that really affects, you know, 
spikes and, and drops in in, in glue in blood glucose. Is that is that a is that a fair categorization that use, using uh, insulin really as a, as a damper or like a like a shock on your car to to prevent you know wild oscillations? That's not a bad way of thinking about it. Um, you know, really, you know, the body has a need for glucose as the um, the currency for energy. It's what the body spends when when you need to uh, use energy for a process. So, give me an example of our mental function, brain function, uh, is highly dependent on glucose. Um, muscles use glucose uh, to to power what muscles do. Other cells are using glucose, and so. Because glucose is the common currency of energy in the body, we are very tightly tuned to regulate that within very precise parameters. Um, and, and we do that, you know, not getting too deep in the weeds, but, you know, we, we take glucose that we ingest. We also take building blocks and manufacture glucose. And we take glucose molecules and we put them together into larger stores, if you will, called uh, glycogen. Um, and so, the, the body is used to, uh, in real time, regulating the glucose that we are consuming as well as the glucose that we're, we're manufacturing so that all of our cells are getting what they need in real time and we're not uh, excessively going up or down in our blood sugar level. And a lot of that, as you say, is related to, to, glu to uh, insulin. Oh, cool. You know, I recently wore a uh, continuous glucose monitor uh, provided as part of the beta testing with Levels Health. And, you know, you mentioned there that, you know, insulin, you know, moves, insulin and glucose, you know, change uh, throughout the day to, to respond to activities and whatnot. You know, one of my, one of my interesting learnings uh, watching my, my real-time blood glucose was, you know, prior to waking up, I would see Oftentimes, my my glucose would drop during the during the early hours of the morning, and then immediately prior to waking up, my body would respond by per, you know producing more more glucose to uh, you know to help help me wake up. And, and I guess that's a biological response people typically have you know when waking. Hey, that can happen because you know you're you're having to suddenly uh, power up. You know you got to get everything woken up. Your your brain, your body. You know you got to be able to stand up and and walk and not fall down and. All those things uh, are going to, you know, just like hitting a light switch. You know, it's dark in the room. You turn on the light switch, boom, you're on. And similarly, the body has to have a way to, you know, uh, jumpstart things in real time so that you don't experience problems. And that's that's one of the things I think that a continuous glucose monitor gives you visibility to that you otherwise wouldn't know is that there are some some important um, adjustments that the body is making. And they're, they're not crazy. Uh, you know, you're not going up to a glucose of 300 or something, but you know, th there are some adjustments. Blood pressure is the same way. Your blood pressure is usually uh, the lowest when you're uh, relaxed and asleep and blood pressure jumps up uh, as you wake up and start moving. So there's another uh, adaptation the body is making from a, a sleep to a wake state. Right, right. And, and you know, you mentioned there a lot of the benefits of wearing a continuous glucose monitoring uh, or even looking at glucose as an independent biomarker. Diabetes is often is, I guess, the real definition of diabetes is having a fasting glucose greater than 125 uh, milligrams per deciliter. One of the challenges with monitoring, whether, whether you're monitoring blood glucose continuously or, or doing a periodic, you know, assessment, are, are there challenges with using that as a predictor of diabetes alone? Well, yeah, there are huge challenges. And to understand that, we have to go back just a little bit and kind of pick up our conversation about insulin resistance. When you think of diabetes, as you said, we have some threshold numbers that we kind of arbitrarily use to say, 
once you cross 125 milligram per deciliter of fasting glucose on multiple occasions in an otherwise healthy, normal physiologic state, you have transitioned into this land of diabetes. Now at 123, you haven't crossed that threshold. At 126, you have. So the, the average person would say, well, what's really different between 123 and 126? Not a whole lot, but you have to draw a line somewhere. And the American Diabetes Association has, has drawn a line in that fashion. There are other definitions for diabetes as well, but they all basically impose a criteria above which there's diabetes and below which there's not. When really in point of fact, what's happening is there is a continuous series of changes that the body is going through from normal glucose metabolism to very dysfunctional glucose metabolism, which you just defined as diabetes. So what happens in between those two extremes from being very normal to very abnormal? Well, what's happening is that the body is seeking to maintain with insulin and the cells that insulin is receiving uh, the signal for, it's seeking to maintain just a normal metabolism of glucose. If you have peripheral insulin resistance, which means the liver cells, the muscle cells, the fat cells are not responding well to insulin, then your blood sugar begins to rise. And in order to keep a damper, as you said on this, and not let it get totally out of hand, the body makes more and more insulin to force these cells to behave well enough that you compensate and keep your glucose elevated, but not crazy elevated. Uh, now this range of glucose elevation, say from 100 to 125, has its own special designation. And, and the American Diabetes Association calls a 100 to 125 glucose prediabetes. And, and so that's an interesting term. And, and they basically are trying to indicate by that that people between 100 and 125 have a greater likelihood of developing diabetes than somebody who has a glucose less than 100. So what, what you're getting in your mind's eye now is this picture where as you get worse and worse insulin resistance, the body produces more and more insulin and that compensates to maintain your glucose in a slightly elevated but pretty consistent range for a long period of time. Now, that's the beginning, if you will, of the road that culminates in diabetes. And as you travel down this road, over time, insulin resistance can become worse. And as you have worsening insulin resistance, you have to produce more and more insulin just to compensate and try to keep your glucose at this elevated range, say from 100 to 125. This goes on for decades, decades. And eventually the pancreas, which produces insulin, begins to fail. And as the beta cells fail in the pancreas, there is a drop in insulin production, but there's still the same high level of insulin resistance in parts of the body. And the net result of dropping your insulin in that setting is you rapidly increase your blood sugar. And so the transition from elevated glucose to diabetes is frequently very precipitous. It happens over a short period of time, even though you have been compensated in this pre-diabetic stage for a long time. So the other thing to take from this conversation is that glucose changes are lagging indicators of this problem of worsening insulin resistance. They're not leading indicators. And that's an important concept. If you're looking at, at glucose to help you understand, should I be worried? Uh, there's really a very uh, difficult 
challenge of trying to take your glucose level or my glucose level or anybody's individual glucose level and say with any precision at all, if you have a glucose of 105, you have this percent chance of developing diabetes over, let's say, the next eight years. So what you have to do if you want to get around the problem of how to predict an individual's risk of diabetes, you have to have more than just glucose. You, you actually need understanding of their insulin resistant status and their glucose, and you need to marry that information together in order to get a more granular understanding of an individual's diabetic risk. So let me just give you an example. Let's say that in my practice, uh, and this happens every week, uh, I have two people with a glucose which is elevated, say, at 105. Now, do these two people at 105 have the same risk of diabetes? The answer is no. And how do we know that? We know that from a number of very good landmark clinical studies. One of them is called the Multi-Ethnic Study of Atherosclerosis, called MESA. Uh, MESA is a cohort of 6,000 uh, contemporary, healthy, ethnically diverse individuals that have been followed for many decades. And so what, what does this teach us? It teaches us that at the same glucose value, there's a huge transition to diabetes over any finite period of time, eight years, for example. And at 105, you might be at a 5 to 7% risk on the low side, or you might be at a 35 or more percent risk on the high side. That's a huge range. So if you were able to say, with additional information, I can tell you that you're not, say, 5 to 35%. I can tell you that given your specific insulin resistance and glucose, you're 30%. So now we have given a more precise estimate of risk to an individual, and more importantly, it doesn't have to stay that way. People can make changes in their lifestyle that improve insulin sensitivity, make them less insulin resistant, that can decrease blood sugar, and you can swing from what can be a very high risk value to a low risk value in a relatively short period of time. And as long as you maintain favorable uh, lifestyle choices, you will maintain that reduced risk over time. Right. And, you know, insulin resistance, you, you mentioned a lot that, you know, that's something that someone can affect and, and, and you know, change with lifestyle and, and nutrition. You know, and with our, our Precision Health Reports Diabetic Risk Assessment, we use the lipoprotein LPIR from LabCorp. Um, why, why is that LPIR score, for lack of a better term, why do we use that versus the variety of other ways of measuring insulin resistance? You know, this is where... Data is our guide, um, and there are many, many ways to infer insulin resistance. Uh, one way is to just measure insulin levels, because when you're insulin resistant, your insulin levels go up. Well, the challenge with that is, number one, insulin is a, a difficult test to perform well. Number two, remember insulin levels also fall as people are transitioning closer and closer to diabetes, so there is no insulin level which gives the specific granularity you're looking for. Uh, you can look at ratios, for example, triglyceride divided by HDL cholesterol. That's a ratio that the higher it is, the more insulin resistant someone is. Uh, you can combine insulin and glucose in what's called a HOMA-IR score, which also gives information about insulin resistance. So there are many, many different um, ways to infer insulin resistance. The question is, how well do any one of these predict diabetes? Now, that's a very simple, straightforward question, but you have to look in landmark clinical data sets to answer the question, and that's what we've done. Um, so 
just to give you an idea, at, at Lipo Science, uh, we were very, very committed to the process of working with collaborators in academic institutions, with the government, uh, with others to understand questions like what we just posed. With over 500 peer-reviewed clinical studies in press and over 17 million samples analyzed, I can tell you we learned a few things. And one of the things that we learned is that many of the factors that some people would use to infer insulin resistance actually are related to each other. They're highly interrelated. And the question is, how do you get to understand the value of any one factor if it exists in a pool of interrelated factors? And that may sound kind of clunky, but what this is called is confounder variable effect. If we have multiple things that are related to each other and related to transition to diabetes, you have to go through some very sophisticated uh, models. And what you're doing in these models is you're saying, okay, I'm going to adjust for things like age, gender. Um, I'm gonna adjust for family history of diabetes and a variety of things. And those base adjustments are going to be where we start, all right? So I've adjusted for all the things that external to insulin resistant measures could influence your risk of diabetes. I've already accounted for all that. So now what we're left with is a series of tests which individually could each tell me something about your diabetic risk. Now what we're gonna do is we're gonna put those together to see if they cancel each other out. And so if you put insulin resistance as measured by the uh, nuclear magnetic resonance LPIR score in a model and ask, does LPIR predict future diabetes? The answer is yes. Okay, we'll check that box. And then just by itself, you could also ask the question, does triglyceride HDL ratio predict future diabetes? Yes, check that box. And you do that for all of these things we just mentioned. And then you actually let them, if you will, fight it out together in the same room. You put them all in the same room, put them all in the same model and say, okay, if I adjust the LPIR score for glucose, does it still predict diabetes? The answer is yes. If I adjust the LPIR score for body mass index or waist circumference, does it still independently significantly predict future diabetes? Yes, okay. If I adjust the LPIR score for insulin, does it continue to predict? Yes. If I adjust the LPIR score for uh, insulin and glucose together in the HOMA IR score, does LPIR still continue to predict? Yes. And you basically put all of these things in the same model. And what you find is that the last man standing the one which is able to survive all of this adjustment and still significantly independently predict future diabetes is the NMR LPIR score. And that's why we use it. Great, great explanation. It's, uh, it's one of those ones that, you know, that score is probably well known in some, some circles, but not as well known in other circles. And, you know, perhaps too much reliance on a variety of other indicators that are less accurate result in people not necessarily realizing exactly where they are with insulin resistance. So to your point, I think the, the two questions that people sometimes don't differentiate, the, the question can be, do I have a measure of insulin resistance? And the other question is, what's my risk for developing diabetes? Those are two different questions. I know a lot of people who are very invested in finding a way to measure or infer the presence of insulin resistance. Now, that's great, but the question which is on people's mind is more commonly, What's my risk for diabetes? People fear diabetes and they fear diabetes for a good reason. Uh, diabetes is the leading cause of preventable blindness, one of the leading causes of amputation, one of the leading causes for kidney failure and dialysis, leading cause for cardiovascular disease, heart attack and stroke. 
Uh, so there, there's a lot that, that people should be concerned about in terms of uh, diabetes. And if you could avoid that, that's the exercise. The exercise is don't be that guy, don't develop diabetes. And so it really does kind of, I think, clinically come back to the, the central question, what test helps me best identify an individual's diabetic risk? And as they're making changes, what test best identifies their improvement in their diabetic risk? It's also the LPIR score. And we learned this from the Diabetes Prevention Program, landmark clinical study, which taught us that lifestyle change can take high-risk individuals and significantly lower their progression to diabetes. So, so this all gets back to what's the right tool to give an individual the right insight so they can make an informed decision and monitor their progress. Right. And, and you know, diabetes, you know, thinking about it as really the most catastrophic, seeming, seemingly most catastrophic component of, of general metabolic health. You know, what are the other factors that, that are really factored into someone's, I believe you used the term metabolic severity score before. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you really categorize the, the overall metabolic health of a person outside of just diabetes alone? So, you know, when we go back to metabolic syndrome as something that people have used to describe the parts of the elephant. And so we're going back to our elephant analogy, right? There's blood pressure, there's blood sugar, there's uh, the good cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, there's triglyceride, and then there is a tape measure around your waist. How wide around are you uh, in the waist? And those five elements are, are the criteria that people use to clinically define the presence of metabolic syndrome. So metabolic syndrome, if you meet three or more of those five criteria, you are said to have this composite entity, the metabolic syndrome. Um, that's a categorical statement. Uh, because you check three, four, or five boxes, you're in this camp. So let's go back to my question that I used at a single glucose value, do you know what your risk of diabetes is? If, if I tell you that I can check three boxes and because you have three of five boxes checked, you're a metabolic syndrome patient, does every metabolic syndrome patient with three boxes checked have the same risk of diabetes, heart attack, and stroke? The answer is no. Well, does every individual with four boxes checked have the same risk? The answer is no. Um, so how can you better differentiate your risk of diabetes, heart attack, or stroke due to the severity of this insulin resistance syndrome? Well, this is where researchers at the University of Florida and University of Virginia came up with um, a, an opportunity to investigate landmark clinical trials and ask the question, I'm going to make a calculation, a multi-marker out of all of these factors of metabolic syndrome, and by putting different weighting factors on each one and using each value as what we call a continuous variable. So the number is, for example, with your upper blood pressure reading, systolic blood pressure, say it can run from 80 to 190, right? And that's a continuous range and in individual numbers along the range. So let's take glucose, your upper blood pressure number, your lower blood pressure number, your waist circumference, um, good cholesterol, triglyceride, make all of these continuous variables. And what they determined is they can mathematically rank somebody from zero to 100% uh, 
with this metabolic syndrome severity score. And the thing to know is that when you are in the upper 25% of that group, you are at very high risk for diabetes, heart attack, and stroke. And as you go down that scale, you progressively lower your risk for those three things. Now, that is very helpful because uh, what you can't do with just a categorical metabolic syndrome, you have three of five factors, is you have no idea with those three factors, where are you in terms of your severity for heart attack, stroke, and diabetes? And the metabolic syndrome severity score shows you that. In, in many trials, the other question was, is there really value to know the metabolic syndrome severity more than just the individual parts that make it up? So there has been debate in, in the medical world as to maybe I'm good enough just to know your triglyceride and your HDL cholesterol and your blood pressure, your blood sugar, your waist circumference. If you give me those raw numbers, I'm good. I can tell you what your risk is. Or is it the case that by using this uh, weighting system called the metabolic syndrome severity score, that that score actually outperforms the individual factors? And the answer is it does. And so there is greater precision in knowing your risk for diabetes, heart attack, and stroke using the metabolic syndrome severity score than trying to infer it by using the individual values as standalone variables. Uh, in a future podcast episode, maybe multiple episodes, we'll do, we'll look at, you know, a variety of cases and case studies that you've formed. You know, one of the things that um, I think comes out of that discussion there is each of these variables in, in an individual may be a little bit high on a point by point basis, but brought together as a combination, you know, someone, someone who looks eh, pretty healthy, uh, may be really unhealthy because of stacking a variety of risk factors on top of each other and, and, you know, slightly elevated values across a whole spectrum of, of scores. Turns out that this person isn't, isn't nearly as healthy as they generally may be. And seeing those risk scores all together provides a, a very clear picture. This person, you know, really needs an intervention. Well, you're spot on. And, and I'm thinking of a case that um, I use a lot when I talk to colleagues of mine. I actually you know, presented this case to a group of family physicians in a nearby city. And it was exactly that. It was a 42-year-old guy who looked eh, not so bad. I, he had individual factors that were a little bit over the upper limit in their uh, systolic blood pressure, a little up. Diastolic blood pressure was a little bit up, but he wasn't hypertensive as such. Uh, his triglyceride was up, but not crazy up. His good cholesterol was down, but not crazy down. His glucose was 102. And you look at this, and on the surface, you say, basically, I've seen a lot worse. Uh, this guy's not great, but, you know, your gestalt is, well, you know, I, could, I, I should probably tell him to do better with diet and exercise. But he came to me with a very specific question. He wanted to know, what is my risk of diabetes? What is my risk of heart attack and stroke? Because my mom was a diabetic. And my dad had a stent when he was 58. And so he wanted to know as best he could a lot of details about himself. And when we ran him through our chronic metabolic risk assessment, he ended up with very interesting values. His metabolic syndrome severity score was at the 85th percentile, way up. His insulin resistance score was above 80, which is very high. His eight-year risk of diabetes was in the very high risk range, despite having a glucose of 102. His overall cardiovascular risk was very high. And by looking at other factors that we'll talk about on future podcasts, which are recommended by the uh, American uh, College of Cardiology, the European Society of Cardiology, others, 
he had multiple what we call risk enhancing factors, which go far beyond the usual typical calculation of risk that people have access to with online calculators. So at the end of the day, just by focusing on a detailed analysis of the moving parts that make a difference, he could see with very uh, you know, extreme clarity, he's that guy. But at 42, he's also that guy who can do something about it. And if he was just you know, looking in a cursory fashion at a lot of the usual numbers that people have access to, it's very unlikely that he would walk away with a call to action that he needed to do something that otherwise um, it would be a missed opportunity to decrease his risk for heart attack, stroke, and diabetes. Right. Wow. That's uh, it's it's interesting to to see all those things kind of stacked together. You know, going from you know again, I'm I'm probably okay to an 85 percent you know metabolic severity score. That's that's pretty drastic. You know, so so you're you know you're a nationally recognized thought leader in cardiometabolic health. Uh, you know, I, I know um, doctors nationally send you know send very hard cases to you uh, to to take a look at, and so you know your uh, your practice is is oftentimes you know patients that are in a, a really bad spot. Are are there are there certain things that you know people should on on a, on a cursory level identify as I really need to ask my doctor about this situation I've got. I'm, obviously, that's a, it, there's probably a, a jillion things in there. Are there certain things people should really look at in their own health situation and, and make sure they're checking in on with their, with their primary care physician and, and, and over time uh, with, with a, a more complete assessment like, like one of our precision health reports? You know, it's, it's a great question. It's really, you know, kind of a layered approach. It's, you know, like the, the old analogy, the onion has a lot of layers, you keep peeling it back to find out what's really in the middle. Um, you know, most people begin with the things that they've heard a lot about, cholesterol, blood pressure, weight. Um, and these are good factors. I mean, these, these are basically uh, screening tools, in my opinion, that get people to a point where there is a, a greater degree of detail applied, more testing, more questions asked. Uh, more analysis done. So, I mean, if you really want to get down to what are the most actionable, helpful pieces of information, I would say there are a few things. Number one, uh, we we haven't talked a lot about lipoproteins yet today, but remember that cholesterol and triglyceride are fat that we have to have to be alive. Cholesterol is not bad. Every cell in our body has to have cholesterol or the cell wouldn't work. Uh, Triglyceride is the principal way that we store long-term energy away for basically a rainy day when we need it. So our body is made to produce and retain and utilize cholesterol and triglyceride for vital functions to maintain life. So it's not the fact that the cholesterol is actually causing heart disease. The, The next level of that conversation is there are carriers of cholesterol and triglyceride that we call lipoprotein particles. And these lipoproteins are what get the letter names. Low density lipoprotein, LDL, is the bad guy. High density lipoprotein, HDL, is the good guy. And the cholesterol inside may be a way to estimate how much you have, but really the cholesterol in LDL and HDL is exactly the same and the cholesterol is not causing a problem. What's causing the problem is the particles that carry the cholesterol and triglyceride. And so, One thing that's very important is to know how many of the bad guys you have. Uh, You can think about this in a simple analogy about crime in your city. Crime is caused by criminals. The more criminals you have, the more likely you're going to have crime. Uh, Police officers are good guys, and they they try to keep the peace. But the bad guys have the advantage of knowing what they're going to do and when they're going to do it, and the good guys probably don't. 
So is it better to decrease your crime rate by decreasing the bad guys or increasing the good guys? Well, there could be value to both, but what we've learned with lipoproteins is it really hinges on how many of those bad particles do you have. The longer you are exposed to a high burden of bad particles, the more you accelerate plaque formation, blockages in the wall of the artery, heart attack, stroke, et cetera. This is the thing to consider is, you know, take another step, look beyond the simple cholesterol and ask the question, do I have these particles that will hurt me in high number? And if you do, you need to do something about that because leaving people in that state for long periods of time definitely accelerates the formation of blockage in their arteries, heart attack, and stroke. That's one example. And there are others. But, but this is what we want to do with precision health reports. We want to bring the important pieces of information to bear so that there's visibility given to these root causes of why people should be concerned. And you can follow these highly important root cause variables to make sure that whatever plan the provider and the patient uh, agree upon that's executed, it's having its intended effect. Yeah, and I know you've written a, a piece for us in the past about LDL particle and APOB, and we'll link those in the show notes uh, for this episode. And, and you know, we'll, we've definitely got in mind a, a future podcast that really dives deep into those particle measurements. I'm, I'm really excited to share that with a lot of people. A lot of people get excited about LDLC and HDLC, but, you know, working with you, I've learned a lot about particles and some of the particle science. So I'm excited to have that, uh, that podcast uh, coming up in the near future. Well, we'll have to devote like a day to it because it's, <laughs> it's complicated, man. It's really complicated. And, and there are a lot of different factors that overlap with this. There are number factors, there are size factors, there are subpopulations of particles. And, and what I'll tell you that I find very interesting is that um, it, it really uh, boils down to how you handle data uh, in order to draw a conclusion. Uh, I, was, I was at a, a national meeting one time and another lipidologist and I were supposed to have a point counterpoint debate uh, as the opening session for a several day conference. And um, time came and he and I had not talked to each other ahead of time. He had actually been traveling in Asia for the couple of weeks before. So I really had no idea what he was gonna say. He really had no idea what I was gonna say. It was about this topic of particle number and size. And you know, I gave my 30 minute talk, he gave his 30 minute talk. And what was curious was uh, I would estimate about a third of the slides were exactly the same slides that we both used. And we both came to the same conclusion. And the moderator was a little disappointed. He said, well, this is supposed to be a, a point counterpoint. Well, where's, the, where's the counterpoint? And, and the guy that I had as my panelist with me said, well, we've both been around. We both know how to handle the data. And this is what you get to when you handle the data in a comprehensive way. Now, if you, if you didn't take the extra steps to unpack it this thoroughly, you would come up with uh, partial answers that would be like holding different parts of the elephant again. And, and these would be observations that are uh, as stated correct, but they are incomplete. And this is what I find a lot of folks have in this space of, of lipoprotein data and research um, and different points of view is that, you know, people have different points of view in large part because of the way they do or don't handle the data. So I don't think people are right or wrong. I think we have different approaches. And, and because we have different approaches, we, we have different uh, levels of uh, understanding uh, and, and different insights as to what may or may not be helpful. And so I, I don't think there has to be quite as much uh, acrimony as sometimes exists about this. That there are some people who 
Um, I, I think feel pretty passionate uh, about this, and that's great. Uh, but I, I would uh, say that you know if we can agree as to you know what the different challenges are and handle the data correctly, we can get to that city slicker moment. I don't know if you remember uh, that movie City Slickers, right? But Curly, right. the main character in City Slickers, at one point in the movie, holds up his finger with a number one sign. He said, "There's one thing that's really important," you know. And and I've never forgotten that uh, you know that's the exercise. The exercise is to take a lot of complicated things and keep asking the right questions and keep doing the data analysis to really understand when all is said and done, what are the fewest number of things that make the biggest impact? And if you can do that, then a lot of this becomes much more easily understood and much more action. That's true. And, and you know, and with the beauty of our some of our modern technologies, both good and bad, I'm, I'm a big Twitter user. Um, there's a lot of content being shared from a variety of viewpoints about metabolic health, metabolic dysfunction, a lot of information out there, but it all generally points to addressing metabolic health is a leading step to living a healthier lifestyle altogether. And I'm, I'm glad you said that because, you know, what we're doing uh, with Precision Health Reports and, and these folks that you're re referencing is we're, we're taking a step back and we're saying, you know, it's really not the case that heart disease is a single entity by itself and diabetes is a single entity by itself. And you should look at these two different problems as two different opportunities for improvement. Uh, what we've talked about during this podcast is that there, there is this common entity of cardiometabolic health, which is giving rise to diabetic risk and it's giving rise to cardiovascular risk, but it is the central element. And if you don't treat these two as separate entities, but a common commingled entity emanating from insulin resistance, then we're refocusing the conversation where it should be. What's the root cause and what can I do about it? And once we think in those terms, then uh, this becomes a, a much better conversation, much more actionable. I, and the nice thing is, as you know, is when people see their results improving, it's very empowering. It's, it's great to go from the, uh oh, that's me moment to the, wow, it's working moment. And, and that's what I enjoy in, in seeing my patients is letting them, you know, get that feedback and, and seeing the excitement uh, and the and the, the way that that uh, empowers them to continue to maintain good choices going forward. Because really, it's sustainable change that matters. Non-sustainable change is just a blip. Uh, you know, people have done this. I've done this. Other people have done this. You have an event coming up and you want to get in that suit or you want to get in that dress. And so you, you hit it, you know, pretty hard. You do the right things for a while. You eat right. You exercise. You, you know, you improve your, your appearance. You improve some of your metabolic health. And you say, okay, that, that event's done. And then you go back to your old ways. Thinking of lifetime risk, have you really had the benefit that you, you should be more concerned about? And the answer is no. Until you start thinking long-term that you know, you're gonna be in the body that you have hopefully for 70, 80 years, uh, and you want that to be a body that, that holds up well over time, that you can enjoy the things that mean a lot to you with your family and activities that you, you like. Um, and I ask people, sometimes in my office when they're you know debating whether they should begin a lifestyle program due to the information we're sharing with them you just ask them what do you think a really good day would look like five years from now and then ask them you know would that day look as good if you had a heart attack a stroke no would that day look as good if you had complications of diabetes no so what we're really talking about is maintaining a high quality of life and, and taking responsibility for the uh, 
opportunities we have to take chronic diseases, which are uh, a consequence of our modern society and influencing them favorably for a long period of time. Right, you know, and, and you mentioned, you know, people a lot of times react to upcoming events as a as a trigger to get healthier. In our current situation with the COVID-19 pandemic ongoing, uh, a lot of people have, from what I've seen, uh, obviously realized that poor metabolic health and poor cardiometabolic health are drivers of the severity of the COVID-19 uh, virus infection and, you know, how devastating it may be to a person. In many cases, you know, recognizing that they need to be healthier to prevent having the, having the virus and, and having, you know, long-term consequences from the virus. Are you seeing clinically more patients that are, that are aware of an improved cardiometabolic state as a, as a driver to help them avoid the consequences of COVID-19? I think people are at all stages of that conversation. Um, I, I do have people who are highly aware that there are what we call comorbid states, diabetes, heart disease, poor cardiometabolic health, which sets them up for more severe consequences of contracting COVID-19. So I think a lot of people get that message. And, and it's good that you know part of the discussion that's happened over the last several months with COVID-19 is a recognition of what high-risk individuals look like and, and really taking extra steps to protect those individuals uh, from contracting the virus. But the question you ask is the next question that we sometimes are still trying to get people to try on for size, and that is, what can you do to shore up and improve your cardiometabolic status so that, God forbid, you become infected, you're going to do better? You're going to do better because you're not that person who has one foot on the banana peel, metabolically speaking. Uh, you need to, to take you know, proactive steps to improve your metabolic health and therefore decrease the severity you're likely to experience should you become infected. Yeah, if, if there's a silver lining from such a devastating period of, of, our, of our lifetimes, I think the, a greater awareness of health uh, has has been a, a positive if, if there is one to come out of this this era. So long as we continue to maintain our, our focus on it, right? Because, you know, out of sight, out of mind is a real phenomenon. And I, I'm going to look forward to the day that, you know, COVID-19 is a distant memory. It'll come and we all, you know, it can't come here soon enough. But, you know, we, we should have some long-term learnings from this. And one of those is that, um, you know, the, this whole situation of being in poor cardiometabolic health, being at higher risk for diabetes, heart attack, stroke, or having diabetes and, and needing to do something about it. Uh, these are all manageable, modifiable clinical situations. Uh, an outcome is not written on a rock somewhere. You can influence this. You can actually make significant improvements so long as you're doing things that achieve the outcomes that we're talking about and you're maintaining them for a long period of time. Absolutely. You know, you're, you're, you're well-known in the, in the lipidology space, uh, thought leader. I mean, you've 30 plus publications, um, you're referenced in so many places. Are, are there other, you know, thought leaders, whether, whether clinical or, uh, research wise that, that you look to as, you know, voices that you trust in the metabolic health and cardiometabolic space that, uh, that people should, should pay attention to? Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're early in our podcast career, right? <laughs> right, right. There, there are others that, that are uh, at this for a long time. And, and depending on the level of information that you're interested in, you know, how, how deep in the weeds you want to go, uh, there are people like Peter Atia who uh, 
has a, a number of guests on that are themselves uh, renowned experts and, and they take a topic and man, they really dive deep on it. And for people who are into some of the, the deeper details, um, his uh, podcast and resources are very helpful. Uh, another guy is Rob Wolf. Uh, Rob has done a tremendous job of you know, bringing practical awareness to lifestyle change in the paleo world, uh, low carb world. Uh, he has a number of resources. He's a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, he's got the Healthy Rebellion. Uh, you know, these are these are all resources that that people really should take advantage of because uh, he and Nikki really also take uh, topics not at face value, but but really want to unpack them at a point where people get a better understanding of, you know, where are the controversies, why do controversies exist, what's the information you practically need to know. How can you be a part of a community that is reinforcing good behavior that results in good change over time? So those are a couple of examples of, of folks that um, have a lot of resources that could be helpful out there. Right. You know, I, I, I listen to Rob's podcast uh, about twice a week is about the frequency he publishes. And I really enjoy, uh, really enjoy his podcast. I make time for it. You know, Dr. Atia, his, his podcast makes me makes me feel smart, but also makes me feel like I've got to do homework after I listen to it. You know, there's there's uh, it's so it's so deep. Sometimes I, I end up with uh, a page or more of notes that I have to go back and do a lot of research on, and end up down some weird rabbit holes. But both of those are, are two that I really um, I really enjoy listening to their their voice and, and appreciate their depth of science and ability to communicate that science to uh, to the rest of us. And that's something we want to do with this podcast over time is, you know, bring in uh, guests that have points of view that uh, can help uh, listeners to, you know, really unpack some of the questions. You know, diet, for example, is there anything more controversial than diet? I don't know. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff out there in the diet world from, you know, even low carb. You know, what does low carb mean? What, what are low carb applications? What does keto mean? What are keto applications? What's paleo all about? Uh, you know, what about the other applications of, of some of these thought processes? Um, and, and there's a lot that people have, have written. And, and I think we're um, at this point now where there's so much information, it's really hard for the average individual to wade through it all and come to some central understanding of, of the complexities. And so, you know, bringing folks who uh, groove on those details on the program so that they can help everybody understand the bigger picture, you know, what the controversies are and, and what what's our best learning, what's our best understanding, and, and how do you make that work for you? Great stuff. And, and as we're as we're getting to wrap up here a little bit, I want to kind of circle back a little bit about you mentioned, you know, diet, diet is such a uh, controversial topic for for you personally, what's your true norths uh, for for your own nutrition and your own uh, healthy lifestyle? What are things that you you use to moderate your metabolic health? So simple little statements. First simple statement is don't do the bad things. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the, the bad things I think we all understand, uh, highly processed sugars, cakes, cookies, pies, ice cream, candy, uh, that does not make a stable diet. Uh, we, we can enjoy those things on occasion, and we should. Uh, we just celebrated Thanksgiving. I gave myself free license for a few days to enjoy uh, not only the goodies that we made, but the um, uh, leftovers that we had. And so it's, it's time for me now to get back to my usual and customary. But, you know, I think it's fine for people to acknowledge that uh, when you live, you're going to have special occasions, anniversaries, holidays, birthdays, celebrations, and don't feel guilty about it. I, you know, just plan and say, you know, I'm giving myself liberty on these days. Uh, I'm not going to go crazy, but I am going to, you know, do some things I don't normally do or do, you know, a little bit more of some things, and that's okay. Uh, but having enjoyed that, it's time to get back to, to the usual and customary. So don't do the bad things. 
means, you know, you've got to have your good days outnumbering your bad days. And you have to be intentional about the days that you're going to give yourself liberty. Uh, if you do that and you, you call a timeout and, and you mean it and you're going to go back to where you're supposed to be, it's all good. Uh, the second thing is trying to avoid highly processed foods. Foods in, in their natural state have a greater nutritional value. So, you know, fruits and vegetables uh, that are things that you can hold in your hand and say, I know where that came from. I picked it out of the ground. I plucked it off a tree. I shot it. I caught it on a line. Whatever it is that's real, that, that's a food for consideration. Uh, there's no cellophane tree. There's no honey bun tree. Uh, these things do not <laughs> exist in nature. Uh, we made them. So uh, that's that's another principle is trying to stay away from, from processed foods. I'm a, a low-carb advocate. I, I think low-carb means a lot of things to a lot of people. But if you maintain a, a cap on your carbohydrates that is physiologically appropriate for you, that's a good thing. Uh, some people may call a cap 75 grams a day. Some people may call a cap 50 grams a day. Uh, keto people may go to a lower value than that. But, but having a carbohydrate cap is a good thing. And emphasizing the better, higher quality uh, carbohydrates, such as leafy greens, uh, non-starchy vegetables, low glycemic index fruits, as the basis of that is very helpful. Uh, the last thing is I'm a fan of intermittent fasting. And physiologically, our bodies are tuned to be able to hold on to energy for a rainy day. So if you look at some of the hunter-gatherer societies, they have no idea when their meal is going to come around the corner. They're going to have to go track it down. Uh, they may not eat for a period of time. And so our bodies are, are used to holding on to energy for a rainy day. In the U.S., uh, we are in a constantly overfed situation. And we have food on demand all the time. So as a result, you know, we, we get this carbohydrate and calorie packing that takes place, which uh, leads to a real struggle with maintaining normal body weight, central adiposity, worsening insulin resistance. If you limit your calorie consumption to a window of time, then what's happening when you're not eating calories? You're having to get those calories from yourself. You're having to go hunt for energy. You're having to turn on processes that improve insulin sensitivity. And so having a finite window of time to eat during the day is a good thing. Be that eight hours, six hours, or in some cases, people can adopt a shorter period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I've, you know, I've experimented a variety of those things. And I've, I've found for me an eight hour feeding window, a 16 hour fasting period. Uh, I work out fasted. It doesn't affect my ability to gain strength. I think a lot of people should experiment more with what works for them, it gives them a, a lifestyle they can maintain. Cause I think at the end of the day, you know, no, no nutrition plan, no activity plan, no fasting plan works if you're not going to stick with it. And so finding something that works for you and that you can you can maintain and that consistency is a path to success. I totally agree. And so the, the last thing of not doing the bad things is, you know, fats are good. A wide range of healthy fats are good. But you know, I tell patients, you know, there's a road and there are two ditches. There's the only eat carbohydrate ditch. There's the only eat fat ditch. And there's a big road in between, right? So doing things in moderation is helpful. There are certain physiologic problems that people have that actually indicate the type of diet which would be better for them. For the insulin-resistant person, carbohydrate restriction and intermittent fasting together is a very powerful one-two punch to improve insulin sensitivity, to improve body weight and, and other factors that are associated with that. Uh, but most importantly, to improve insulin sensitivity and decrease risk of diabetes. There are people who have genetic disorders of cholesterol metabolism where intake of saturated fat is very problematic, and they have to absolutely have a, a limit on their saturated fat intake. That's another example of a diet which tunes to the physiologic need of the patient. And so a lot of my 
practice has to do with unpacking what's going on under the, under the surface to know these different drivers so that we can have a conversation about, you know, what are the, the opportunities that you can consider? And most importantly, as you said, that you can sustain. Uh, I, I don't want to make it so hard for people that they, in their motivated state, throw everything out of their pantry and start eating things that are not sustainable. Uh, it's much easier to take a, a more methodic approach to adjust, find uh, factors that you can improve, work those factors for a while, look at your response, look at your LPIR score, look at your particle number, look at your metabolic syndrome severity score, how you doing? Okay, are we happy with what we have? Are we getting better? Do we want to do even more? What are the opportunities for next step change that can be sustainable? And then, you know, the person's finding that path that works best for them. Well, good stuff. So before we wrap up, where are places that people can find you, you know, where you share, where you typically share information, conversations, or are you active on social media? Is there a, a different vehicle? What are places people can interact with you? So, you know, that's a great question. I'm a little bit late to the social media party, I got to admit. Um, so I, I don't have the, the presence that many folks have um, in, in Twitter and, and whatnot, but we're, we're going to have uh, some fixing of that, if you will, with this podcast. So a podcast will be one, one place. Uh, the, the other things that people can do that, that are, you can do some Google searches. There are some videos out there. Um, there there's also, you know, just uh, reaching out to us at our information page at Precision Health Reports. And um, you know, taking uh, questions from folks and getting back to them either directly or making their their questions uh, a part of future podcast is is another way to do it. Um, so I, I take the question as an opportunity. So I, I need to do a little better myself and and uh, putting out uh, content that's uh, easier for people to find. Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I'm I'm fairly active on Twitter, and I, uh, I I know there's a lot of good stuff out there. So I'll give you, I'll give you a hand as best I can. Uh, that would be helpful. Like I said, I'm, I'm late to the dance in some ways, and this is one of them. Well, well, that's great. Well, thanks, thanks for your time today. And obviously, you know, we work together uh, regularly, so uh, we'll we'll continue our conversation as we go. Are, are there any parting thoughts or, or comments that you'd want to share with our audience before we uh, wrap this up? No, it's been a really a lot of fun. I know we've been at this for a while, and and I, and I hope people have uh, found it interesting and have stayed with us to this point. I just want to encourage folks. Um, you know, there is a lot of interest right now in personalized medicine. There's a lot of interest in people getting a deeper dive on what exactly is going on in their bodies and specifically in the, in the area that we work in, you know, what is going on at a cardiometabolic level? What is going on with their insulin sensitivity, their risk of diabetes, their risk of heart attack and stroke? What needs to be done in order to make those factors less likely as we go down the road? And my encouragement is that, you know, this, this is information that is readily available. This is not going to cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars. This is not a $1,000 workup that you have to spend a day in a specialized metabolic ward somewhere to get the answers you need. This is something that we're bringing to the masses that can give people the degree of, of information and detail they need to make the most informed, most impactful decisions. So, um, you know, continue to, to be your own advocate. Continue to, to uh, avail yourself of the information from uh, sources that we talked about. Continue to interact with us. Continue to to understand that uh, we want to help you know what you need to know beyond just the superficial, what's my blood pressure, what's my cholesterol level. Uh, there's much more that, that is readily available that is not going to break the bank, 
and that can empower good decision making and decrease risk for heart attack, stroke, and diabetes. Awesome. Awesome. Well, th- thanks, Bill, for, for your time today. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, obviously, you can find our, our information on precisionhealthreports.com. Feel free to leave comments, uh, ask questions, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll try our best to answer those directly. And, uh, and there may be great topics for future podcasts. Thanks for your time. And until next time, this is uh, Matt Martin from the Healthy Figures Podcast. Thank you for tuning into the Healthy Figures Podcast. We hope you found this as enjoyable as we did. Drop us a line at PersistentHealthReports.com for topics and guests that may interest you. You can also find us on your favorite social media channels, although we are most active on LinkedIn and Twitter. Until next time, stay healthy.